Today's episode will examine 21 secrets of what will happen in heaven. I'm Tom Hill. Welcome to Emmaus Road Chronicles, a series of videos concentrating upon the messages that Jesus gave to two travelers as they went from Jerusalem to Emmaus on the day of Christ's resurrection. It says he opened up to them the scriptures and told them things concerning himself. This series of videos will look at those kinds of episodes that Jesus may have taught to those disciples on that day. Previously on our earlier versions of this series on Emmaus Road Chronicles, we looked at the book of Revelation, and we looked at it because it is a revelation of Jesus Christ. Christ inspired it to the Apostle John, who lived during the days of 60 to 90 A.D., a time when Rome ruled the world. And they ruled it in a very cruel fashion. Their emperors demanded that people worship them as gods. And this placed, of course, a heavy stress and burden upon Christ followers in that day, because they believed in worshiping only the Lord Christ. And so the Lord Jesus inspired the book of Revelation to the Apostle John for those early first century believers. And he sent it through John to believers in what is now Turkey, which is Southwest Asia at that time. In this book, there is many unusual events that are described. Many visions, many symbols used like trumpets, and like unusual characters and creatures that appear. And usually the stress is placed upon trying to interpret those kinds of visions and images. This series will concentrate only upon the main thrust of the book of Revelation, and that is the revelation of Jesus Christ. We see that immediately in verse 1 of chapter 1 of the book of Revelation that Christ sent this book, this inspired writing, to the Apostle John as a revelation of himself, a revelation of Jesus Christ. During that early era, during the rule of the first century by the Roman emperors, the believers suffered greatly. Many of them were persecuted, many of them killed for their faith. And Christ wanted to encourage them because they faced doubt and fear and unbelief and stress of temptation and of trial and tribulation. And so Jesus inspired this book to John for them to first of all correct them from their sin because many of them doubted God and questioned his goodness and questioned whether he was real or not. And so the Lord Jesus inspired this book to encourage them to correct them, to inspire their faith, and to give them hope. And we've examined that in our earlier episodes. And then we turn to Revelation chapter 21, the end of the book, to look at those visions recorded in Revelation 21 and the first part of Revelation 22, because they give to us the consummation of all things, the new heavens and the new earth. That was verse number one. The new heavens and the new earth, and the old earth and the old heavens passed away and were no more. And then we looked at verse number 2 of chapter 21. It talks about and describes the descent of the new Jerusalem, the holy city, 
descending from heaven, from God, down upon the new heavens and the new earth. And we see in those first two verses, those first two visions that we examined, how they reveal to us Jesus Christ and certain aspects about his character and his nature and his relationship with believers. Now we turn our attention to the third vision in this chapter. And this runs from verse number 3 down through verse number 8 of Revelation 21. And it gives us a preview of heaven. What will heaven be like? We get a glimpse in these verses from Revelation 21. And we'll look at them in sequence as they describe for us that wonderful place called heaven, the abode of God and his Son, the Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit, and soon to be the residence of all believers in Christ. And so we'll take a look at those verses and see what they describe for us. Starting with verse number 3 of Revelation 21, we read this. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. God first appeared unto mankind in the garden when he first created Adam and Eve. He fellowshiped with them. He walked with them in the cool of the day, it tells us. They knew intimate fellowship with him. So God has always had as his aim to fellowship with his creation on the earth. Sadly, we read in Genesis chapter 3 of how Adam and Eve sinned, and they disobeyed God, and a break occurred between God and man, and God no longer walked on the earth with them, no longer fellowshiped with them. There was a break, there was a chasm in between them. And then the scriptures begin to describe for us the ways in which God began to come back and to fellowship on the earth with mankind. He started with the temple. And then we read in the New Testament about the Lord Jesus, how he came and fellowshiped in human flesh like we have. And how he came to earth and he mingled among creation. And then we read in Acts about how the Holy Spirit descended upon those early believers and became an indwelling presence. God with us. God living within us, tabernacling, if you will, with human flesh. And now we read here in verse number 3 of Revelation 21, how the voice from the throne speaks and says, I will come and I will make my presence. I will tabernacle with mankind. I will be their God. They will be my people. And I will fellowship and I will be with them. Now we see a description of what it will be like there. Starting in verse number 4, it says, And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. Oh my goodness. Can you hardly wait? Those things described there in verse number 4 are the lot of all of us in various degrees and kinds, isn't it? We all suffer pain, some more so than others. Some have constant chronic pain. Some have pain from disease. Some awful diseases cause severe pain. 
And we just read here that that will all be gone. The former things will have passed away. Let's take a look at some of these things that will pass away that are now the former things as described here that will pass away. No longer will apply to those believers who reside with Christ in the new heaven and new earth. He'll wipe away every tear. We cry frequently, don't we? Sadness invades our lives. Cruelty, death, it comes causing tears and agony. He'll wipe away every tear. It says death shall be no more, or as one writer calls it, the death of death. No longer people will die. Now we all die, and we know that because we have lost family. We have lost loved ones. We've lost friends, neighbors, kin. The death of death. No more will that invade the lot of those inhabitants in the new heaven and new earth. Neither shall there be any mourning. Now that's not talking about like morning and evening. But it's the sadness, the mourning, the crying, the lament, the sorrow. We see here as an overall description, God is going to wipe away all sorrow. No more sorrow will invade the lives and the experience of those residents in the new heaven and the new earth. No crying, no pain. For the former things have passed away. Now we get a description of who it is sitting on this throne and this loud voice speaking. It says, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. This voice speaks again. And this verse links up with verse number four just preceding it, the former things will pass away and the voice says, I will make all things new. They won't be like the former things. There won't be the sadness and the grief and the death and the pain and the tears. All things will be new. All those former things will pass away. And then that voice goes on to say this, And he said to me, John speaking, and the voice says to him, It is done. I am Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Well, who's that? Who fits that description? The Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Who fits that description? Three different times in the book of Revelation, the Lord Jesus Christ identifies himself and describes himself in this fashion, this Using these specific words, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. So this voice that John heard from the throne, and the person sitting on the throne who speaks to them is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Speaking to John, giving to him this message that he describes as true and trustworthy. Write it down, he said, because it is true and trustworthy. And then he says, I am the one who gives the living water to the thirsty. Now that's an interesting description that is given right there because that comes, first of all, from the Old Testament. We first read about the, the waters that will come that will help the thirsty and will satisfy the thirsty. We first read about that in Isaiah chapter 44. Let me read just a couple of verses from there that describe this. 
Isaiah 44, beginning in verse number 1, it says this, But hear now, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. Here it is. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. The first description using this illustration, this illusion, if you will, of water, pouring water upon dry ground. Many of us have experienced that where Maybe you even live in a desert-like area where the ground is dry constantly and, and the rain comes not very often. And we see how when that rain comes down in the pelts, how the ground just soaks it right up. And it forms little rivulets and little streams. Sometimes barren ground turns into rivers. That's the description. And it says, I will come and I will do that. I will pour water on the thirsty. Rivers upon the dry ground. Well, it doesn't exactly tell us here who that is. It just says that will come. We next read about it in John chapter 4. The occasion when the Lord Jesus went to the country of Samaria, to the city of Samaria, specifically to meet a woman. A Samaritan woman. Had been married many times. Five times been married and she was living with another man. She came to the well in the middle of the day because she was an outcast. And she came to the well outside the city to get water. And Jesus had sent his disciples away into town. He sat there because he knew he had an appointment from eternity past to meet this Samaritan woman. She came with her water pot and she got ready to dipped down into the well to get water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Give me a drink of water. And she immediately was kind of taken back by it, and she said, who are you, being a Jew, ask of me a Samaritan water? The Jews hate Samaritans. First of all, what are you doing here? And secondly, why are you asking me to give you water? Jesus gave to her that epic response in John chapter 4. Verse number 10, Jesus responded to her and said, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, meaning the water in the well. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman responded, and she experienced exactly what Jesus described to her, as well as all of her friends and many others from the neighboring city came out to see this one who spoke with her at the well. We get a little further glimpse into the meaning of what he told that woman at the well and how it applies to people like you and me, and what Jesus was talking about in Revelation 21, when he talks about, I will give the river of life, we read in John chapter 7, an account of when the Lord Jesus went to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. 
one of several feasts that the Jews celebrated in that day. Jesus went secretly. He didn't want people to, he didn't want the commotion of everybody wondering who he was and what he was going to do next. So he kind of crept in unawares and unannounced. And on the last day of the feast, when they had a certain ceremony of pouring out water upon the, the pavements in the city, announcing Isaiah 44, talking about there coming a day when the water would be poured out, Jesus stood up and he cried out to the multitudes. And we read in John chapter 7, starting in verse number 37, what he cried out. And Jesus, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus was the one who would give the living water. And that he spoke of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit of God, which God, together with the Lord Jesus, poured out on those early believers as recorded in Acts chapter 2. Believers ever since that time, those who trust Christ and follow him as Lord and Savior, have experienced something similar to that about the Spirit of God coming to live and dwell within them and producing within them exactly as Jesus described, springs of water ever springing up unto eternal life. Some instances like rivers, floods upon the dry ground. So Jesus said, I'm the one who gives that. And those who trust me, that will be their lot and their experience. Well, we move on into the vision. And we read this in verse number 7. It says, The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son. Now, he's not being gender specific there and saying that's only the experience of males, females excluded. He's using the term there in a generic sense, meaning mankind, humanity, both male and female, men and women. And he says, I will be their God and they will be my children. Think of that. Think of that. The future that we have, those of us who have trusted Christ, in the future, when Christ brings this into actuality, what he describes here in this chapter, when it comes to pass, says we will be called the children of God. Well, then we hasten on and we read the last verse in our text that we wanted to examine today. Verse number 8 says, But as for the cowardly, oh boy, here it comes. Is everyone going to experience what Jesus described to John in those first three through seven verses? No, they won't. That is not the, the experience and the future of every man, woman, and child down through history. He will exclude some. Whom will he exclude? He describes for us here. What a warning it is. It was a warning to those people back in the first century because many of them who called themselves believers in Christ were not. So here he describes who will not partake of the blessings that he described in those previous verses. Look at the list. It says, but for the cowardly, those who run away from the Lord, refuse to listen, the cowardly, the faithless, 
those who refuse to believe and trust upon Christ, the faithless ones, the detestable. That describes those who detest God. Do you detest God? There are many who do. There are many who hate God. There are many who use the name of God only as a curse word. The detestable, they'll not be there. Murderers, those who, as a practice of life, commit murder. The sexually immoral, that's a very broad term. That isn't just talking about those who commit fornication and adultery. Commonly, at least in, in America, in the English language, we typically, when we talk about the sexually immoral, that's what we mean. We mean those who have committed adultery or those who have practiced fornication. But that's not the word that is used here. The word that is specifically used here is a broad term that covers every conceivable practice of sexual immorality. It includes adultery, fornication, it includes prostitution, it includes homosexuality, it includes incest, it includes bestiality, and every other conceivable kind of sexual immorality. Those who practice sexual immorality will not be there. We'll read their destiny in a moment. Then he talks about the sorcerers, those who use magical arts, talking with the dead, palmistry, reading the lines on your palm, those who observe the stars, astrology, and various other kinds of magical arts. Then it talks about idolaters, those who worship idols, figurines. But it isn't just a figurine that qualifies as an idol. We can have money as an idol. We can have fame and fortune as an idol. We can have possessions as an idol. That which consumes us and that which we pursue constantly as the, the sole goal and aim of our lives is to accumulate those things. That can also become an idol. Idolaters and all liars. Does that describe you? Do you fit in that description in there someplace? Look at the destiny that Jesus describes for those people. He says, their portion, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. The lake of fire that burns with sulfur, what, that, what does that describe? That's hell. We don't hear a lot about hell nowadays. We kind of put it aside and say, oh, that doesn't exist. Jesus said it does. And he describes those whose lot will be in that lake of fire, hell. And that will be the second death. Not only will they have died physically, but they will also have another final separation where they will be separated from God forever. They'll be separated from all of his attributes that, that everyone experiences in our day and age. There are certain expressions of God's grace that we experience now, of his mercy, of his goodness, of his justice. Do we experience it perfectly as we will in that day? No. But we do have a measure of it from time to time. That will be all that will be all gone. Separated eternally from God and his attributes. And separated eternally from family and friends who do believe in Christ from those who don't. A second death. Well, why did God, through the Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit, inspire this book for John? The Lord Jesus wanted to help those early believers experiencing such great trauma in that first century under the cruel rule and reign of the Roman emperors. 
They faced many trials and temptations, and Jesus wanted to give to them some hope, some certainty. These things are true and trustworthy. Write them down, he said. And he wanted to encourage them and comfort them, provide for them strength for their faith to endure the difficulties that they faced. Well, what correlation is there to us, to you and me? We, we see how it might have had meaning back then, but how about to us? What meaning does it have for us in correlation to you and me? Well, our world resembles that world. We have many similarities in our present day and age that they experienced. Trauma, difficulty, trial, tribulation, persecution. Many people throughout the world, in fact, some have told us that the more believers have, have endured and suffered persecution in our day and age than throughout all of history combined. And this book provides for us hope. Jesus called it true and trustworthy. Write it down, he said to John. We, like those early believers in the first century, we also can take hope, have our faith strengthened. We can be challenged to correct our sin and to continue to trust the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Therefore, to those of you who are believers, who do trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that the Spirit of God will take these words from John 21, or excuse me, from Revelation 21, and will use them in your life to inspire you, to energize you, to strengthen you, to give you hope and comfort and encouragement for the difficult days that you now experience and that may lie ahead for most of us and many of us. To those of you who have never trusted upon the Lord Jesus Christ, these verses come as a stark warning, as some would describe it, a wake-up call. If you continue in your sin as described there in verse number 8, you see your destiny. Your destiny is the lake of fire, the second death. Well, I pray to you that the Spirit of God will come to you even now and will enable you to recognize your true condition before God, that of a sinful condition. Loving sin, practicing sin, consumed by sin, separated from God, a chasm between you, helpless to make a, any kind of a step or even desiring a step to come towards God. And I pray that the Spirit of God will enable you to see that true condition where you now live and will turn you, turn your heart from that sin and from even every attempt on your part to try and please and reconcile yourself to God and to turn your faith and your trust and confidence upon the Lord Jesus Christ, whom God the Father has provided as a substitute on behalf of people like you and like me helpless to ever reconcile to God on our own. And that you will trust this Lord Christ as your own Lord and Savior. He will welcome you. He will accept you. He will come to dwell within you through the person of the Holy Spirit, enable you to walk in a new and changed life. I pray the Spirit of God will come today and do that in your life.
Thank you for joining us today on this episode and broadcast of the Emmaus Road Chronicles. If you would like to leave a comment on the YouTube site, you're welcome to do that. If you'd like to reach me by email, the email address is listed there as well as my website. Our next episode will look at the physical description of this new Jerusalem, this new city that came down from heaven, adorned like a bride for a bridegroom. Hope to see you next time. Join us then.